The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Faith International University led a track called Discipling Biblically, the Master Plan Way. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. Now here's today's track session. My name is Josh Breffel. I am with Reality Sports. We are a, a, a sports mission. We're going to get into that a little bit more later. Um, but we've partnered with Faith Seminary. We're going to get into that a little bit later too. But that's who we are and what we're presenting. Um, Scotty Kessler presented in our last track session on the multiplication lifestyle of disciple making. How many, anyone in that track session? Okay. Kess talked about that discipleship will begin to, to take personal flavor, right? That, that this is his way, and that as it trickles down, it becomes your way. Um, what's cool, what's, what's an honor, what's a blessing for me is Kess is a grandfather in the faith to me. A man that Kess discipled, discipled me. Um, but this is also an example of it becoming my flavor. I'm, I'm going to teach very differently than Kess did. If you were here, uh, he is an energetic passionate, fire hose kind of guy. Uh, I love it, but we're, we teach differently. And so, Kess, it's an honor to, to teach with you here. Um, and so, we're going we're gonna to begin here. I want to ask, does anyone know who this is? You do? You. Oh, no, it's not me. No. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Now, I, I have to say, I always wonder if this man is ever going to be in a talk I'm doing as I do this. I don't know if he's a believer or not, um, but I'm just wondering if sometime he's going to show up or like his brother or sister are be like, yeah, I know who that is. This is Matt Emmons. Matt Emmons is an Olympian. He's a rifleman. And in the 2004 Athens Games, Matt Emmons kind of came to fame. He's won multiple Olympic medals. Uh, he's won gold medals even, but it was the time he didn't win a medal in 2004 that he's kind of become famous or infamous for. Uh, Matt Emmons was, was in Athens. It was the 50-meter prone competition. And so what he would do is he would get down in the laying position and he would shoot his very technical high-level rifle that we see there and he would try and hit a bullseye. Now, going into the final shot, Matt Emmons had such a lead over the competition that all he had to do was hit the paper to win the gold medal. For an Olympian, that's very easy. Matt Emmons got in the prone position, took his breath, he put his bead on the top of the target. As he exhaled, he let that bead drop to the center of the target, he pulled the trigger, bullseye. He got up elated, he just won the 50-meter prone gold medal, and his coach came to him just broken. What happened in a freak accident was when Matt Emmons was getting down into the prone position, he accidentally took aim at the target next to his. So though he hit a bullseye, it was an altogether miss. He finished in eighth place, didn't even medal at those Olympics. Now why would I lead a track session on discipleship with an example of an Olympic shooter. Here's why. I think that there is 
times in disciple making that we're not aiming at the right target. We might be hitting bullseyes. We might be hitting the paper, but we're missing or we're aiming at altogether the wrong target. This session is entitled, As You Go, Making Disciple Makers Through Sport and Every Other Context. We're going to be looking at the Great Commission and its charge to make disciple makers as you're going in whatever context you find yourself in. And we're going to, we're going to break that down and explain that. And we have to ask the question, are we aiming at the right target? See, where we're going to go is we're going to, we're going to spend our time together looking at what the target should be through the Great Commission, and, and then we're going to talk about principles or ways to, to hit that target. But my fear is that there's times when it seems like we're hitting bullseyes, that we're, that we're being really effective, but then on closer examination, I'm afraid we're going to find out that we may have missed the target altogether. To keep the sports themes, we think we're producing gold medal effectiveness when we're not even making the podium in our ministry or our lives. So let me begin to, to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Josh Breffel. Like I said, I'm the Director of Discipleship at Reality Sports. I'm bivocational. I'm also a pastor in Tacoma, Washington, Summit Christian Fellowship. Um, and we exist, Reality Sports exists to use the context of sport to proclaim the gospel and make disciple makers of athletes and families. I grew up in an unchurched home. Uh, my parents were unbelievers. Sports were our king. Sports were our religion. Uh, I was a wrestler. My sister was a competitive softball player. Both of us played through college. Both of us seemed to be hitting bullseyes in every area of life. We were good students. Um, we were good athletes. We both got scholarships to play in, in school. We both, I, I can't speak for my sister, I refrained from, from partying and those things simply to make sure I was doing well on the mat. And so from the outside, it looked like we had everything together. Sports were our king and our, our God. After high school, all the hard work seemed to be, to be working as, as I found the opportunity to continue my wrestling career at a Division II school in Colorado. But then came a series of season-ending injuries that I'd never experienced before that caused me to spiral into depression, that I started chasing alcohol and drugs. And here's, here was the eye-opening wake-up call I had one time in college. I woke up in, in this alcoholic haze, knowing I was not wrestling again for, for the rest of the year. And I, I thought to myself, if I met someone new today, I wouldn't even know how to introduce myself because my identity has always been tied to wrestling. And that scared me. That shook me. And God used that to begin a year and a half long journey of pursuing me and calling me to himself that eventually, years later, ended up with me being at Reality Sports, being discipled by the founder and executive director, who himself was a wrestler, who was discipled under Kess in this mode of using sport as discipleship. And he began to teach me the importance of the word and of prayer and of, of glorifying God through, through all things. And, and God began to use uh, the sport of wrestling something that was destructive and brought sorrow into my life and began to redeem it and allow me to walk in ministry and walk in, in my purpose of multiplying God's image on the earth through it. And so we use the context of sport to proclaim the gospel and, and to make disciples. So God grabbed me with the gospel um, and, and it's, it's been it's been. A, a journey of, of just pursuing him. Um, I, can, I can trust in a room like this, at a conference like this, 
many of us would say we're disciple or we're products of discipleship. Um, that's why I'm here. I believe in discipleship because I'm a product of it. I, I tried to follow Jesus for about five years on my own, desiring to do it um, in my own strength. No one taught me how to follow, and I was stumbling, and I was, it was terrible. But then a man became to, came alongside me and began to walk with me, and it's been different, and, and I'm a product of discipleship. I believe in it, and it's why we're here. Now, I've learned through that process there's a lot of targets we can be aiming at. There's a lot of good targets we can be aiming at, right? For 25 years, I chased a, a good target of wrestling. I'll tell you, I think wrestling is a good gift from God. I had laser-like focus on that target. But it was the wrong target. So we have to ask, what's the target we're aiming at? So I want to suggest there's even good targets we're aiming at as Christians, in the church, as leaders in the church, that are good targets, but they're not the right target. And so I want to ask... What are some good targets as Christians or as church leaders that we might be aiming at that, that are good but aren't necessarily the right target, the ultimate target to be aiming at? What do you think? Growing attendance. Okay, attendance. What else? Be more Bible knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah, just intake, consuming. Any others? The performance, the product, it's good. Having a quiet time. Yeah, we kind of make that what we're achieving, right, rather than, than God himself. Good. I like to say in, in the church world, sometimes the, the three Bs become the target that are distracting, right? You know what the three Bs are, buildings, budgets, and butts, Right? As long as God will bless our building and our budget and we get more butts in the seats, we're, we're good. And that's the ultimate target because that's the scorecard of effective ministry. Or for the individual Christian, as, as Scotty said, it's, it's consuming more Bible. It's understanding. If I, can, if I can be at a Bible study once or twice a week and, and be in my community group and, and be at church, and those are the, the scorecards or the targets I'm aiming at, then, then we're, we're being effective. But I want to say I don't believe that that's the ultimate target. Those might help us hit the ultimate target, but Jesus lays out exactly what the ultimate target is. He doesn't leave us in the dark on that, and that's the good news in Jesus' revelation. He made it very clear for us as to what we should be aiming at, what our primary focus and attention should be on, and that is making disciples. So we're going we're gonna to spend a few minutes looking at Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission. I'd be remiss if I got to speak at a discipleship conference and not break down the Great Commission a little bit. So we're going to do that. Um, but before we jump in, there's, there's going to be a kind of a, a fire hose of information here. Um, we're going to look at the Great Commission. We're going to look at principles we're using in our sports ministry context to make disciples. We're going to try and translate those to what context you guys might be in. It's going to be dialogical. I want you giving feedback and discussion. And so my prayer is that just one thing would stick today. My prayer for you guys this week has been that, that one thing would be applied as you walk out the door. Something that, that is said or you read would say, that, that's it. And you not get inundated with, with the fire hose of information. So this is where we ought to begin when we look at the target for us as Christians. That, that disciple making is not a ministry that we do. It's not a ministry of the church, but it's the ministry that we should do. Or it's the ministry of the church. I believe disciple-making is the target. And so, can someone read Matthew 28, 16 through 20 for me? 
what we're going to do is we're going to look at three truths from the Great Commission that are, that are going to help us see the target. And then we're going to get into four specific principles for making disciples in whatever context God has placed you. And I do believe God has placed you in contexts strategically for His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. We're going to look at those. Before we do, one of the first truths, the nature of a disciple versus the nature of God. Why do we think there's a disciple-making problem? Why aren't people making disciples? What are some of the reasons? Okay, they haven't experienced discipleship. That's a great reason. Why else? They don't feel qualified. They don't feel qualified. I have, to, I have to reach this minimum standard before I can start leading someone, right? I need to be sinless. That, good luck with that. <laughs> Too busy. Too busy, okay? What else? Yeah, they're ignorant, right? They just don't know they don't know. Leads to haven't been discipled. They haven't seen it modeled. They haven't been taught. I think another reason is people are scared. We're fearful. We doubt ourselves, right? Jesus addressed this in the Great Commission. He said, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I've read this just like you guys have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And I always got stumbled on this part of the passage because I thought, how in the world would these 11 doubt that Jesus was walking to them after all they'd seen? That's crazy to me. And it, it hit me. They weren't doubting Jesus. Now, now hear me here. These 11 have seen him resurrected. This happens post doubting, doubting Thomas touching Jesus and saying, you indeed are the Lord, right? They weren't doubting Jesus. Matthew's writing this after this has happened. He's doubting what Jesus is calling them to. There's disciples who, upon hearing this, doubted if they could ever do it. That's massive. That helps me understand the experience I have with discipleship sometimes, being terrified and doubting if I really have what it takes to walk with someone. So the nature of a disciple, because we have a flawed, sinful nature, is one of doubt. It's one of shame. It's one of, it's one of guilt. But the nature of God, that's altogether different. Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Those things go together. All authority has been given to me. The Father has given me the authority because I've walked in perfect obedience through my life. I'm heading to my death. It's come to me. And now you, therefore, go. I was in the military for seven years. Every time I would deploy, I'd have to do something called a power of attorney. And that would be a, a, a legal document that would be, would be sealed and notarized that would say my wife could act on my behalf. I would give her authority to make decisions and, and do things on my behalf in my absence. Essentially, what we see here is Jesus is giving a power of attorney to the disciples. In my absence, I am giving you authority to continue the mission that I've set out to do. This is the only place Jesus ever authorizes his, his disciples to do something. Officially authorizing them. And so what do we see of the nature of God in this? We see that he's, we see that he's giving. We see that he's sending we see that he's sharing. He's authorizing. Now, now, why would Jesus be like that? He has, he has missing kids. The mission isn't complete. Jesus' storybook Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission. And there's still kids to be rescued. 
This hit home this week. I was at work this last Monday, and I live about five minutes from my house, and my wife called, and she said, Babe, Haddon and Ralph are missing. Haddon is my four-year-old little boy. Ralph is my dog. <laughs> and I said, What do you mean they're missing? She's like, I don't know where they are. They're gone. I said, Okay, I'll be home. I'm going to fast forward, tell you what happened, and then I'll tell you what happened. My four-year-old son was down for a nap. My wife was downstairs doing laundry. He knew she could have been down there, but in his four-year-old brain, he got up, he didn't see her upside, upstairs, couldn't find her. He wanted his blankie, he knew it was in the car, so he goes outside, opens the gate to get the blankie, dog runs out. Dog runs into the forest by our house, he follows him. Wife comes up 35 minutes later, son and dog are missing, right? So I'm driving home from work, I'm flying. I tell her, call 911. We live on a pretty busy street on one side. I'm worried he could get hit by a car. I'm driving around yelling his name, yelling the dog's name, hoping the dog will come before the kid probably, right? Find him almost a mile from my house. He's, he's got socks on and his jammy pants, toes sticking out of the socks, wet and muddy up to his knees. And he smiles at me and said, Ralph and I have been on an adventure, right? But, but this idea of a rescue mission became real this week. If I could have, I would have authorized every neighbor in my entire neighborhood to go on mission to help me find Haddon, right? The nature of, of God is altogether different than the nature of a disciple. And yet he says, the authority I've been given, I'm passing on to you to help me accomplish the mission. That's the first truth that we should see from this text. Secondly, Jesus lays out specifically what the right target is and how to hit it. Let me ask you, how many commands are there in this passage? Anyone? Four? We all agree four? Okay. Trick question. I presented it to you in the English, and it does seem like there's four. If I would have presented this to you in the Greek, you would have seen quickly there's only one. So we're going to have a Greek lesson and a grammar lesson here together. One command in this entire passage. In the Greek, there's an imperative tense. And, and Jesus uses that tense one time, and it's to make disciples. It's the only command there is in this whole passage. This is the target. He says, you join mission with me, and here's, your, here's, the, here's the op order. Here's what you're supposed to do. Make disciples. Now, the other three things that seem like commands to us in our language are what are called participles. We have to put our thinking caps on back to third grade grammar lesson. Participles are helping verbs that accomplish the imperative. Right? So we see three participles. Go. Better probably interpreted it as you go. So make disciples. That's the mission. That's the target. As you do it, to accomplish that mission, you're going to have to go. You're going to go places. You're going to do things. As you're doing that, you're going to accomplish making disciples. You're going to baptize. You're going to go and you're going to baptize. You're going to invite people to know and follow Jesus Christ. And as you do that, you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that they can declare with sign and symbol that they are altogether new, that their allegiance has changed, they've, been dead, they've died with Jesus, and they've risen with his resurrection. Go, baptize, and then teach. So we have inviting and we have investing. Go, baptize, teach. That's how we're to accomplish 
the mission or hit the target that Jesus has laid out of making disciples. Now, this is helpful for us in that I think we should see a banner that says make disciples. And under it, you have evangelism and under it, you have discipleship. Those two things shouldn't be divorced. I hate hearing the argument among Christians or in churches that say, oh, we're an, evangel we're an evangelism church or we're a discipleship church, or I really focus on evangelism. I'm not, I'm not a big discipleship guy, or I'm a discipleship guy. I'm not a big evangelism guy, right? Jesus would, have not, would not have any part of that argument. Make disciples. You know how you make disciples? You evangelize and you disciple. Kess hit it in the last one, but what we see is if you make disciples through discipleship, evangelism will happen. As people are invested, as they're taught to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, and they're done that, done, they, they experience that biblically and faithfully, they will evangelize. Right? And as people are, are evangelized and then they're invested in and they're taught, they'll make disciples. And so we see this banner of make disciples. That is the target. This was Jesus' plan to reach the world. It was a plan of multiplication, not addition. It was a plan of reaching 11 who would then pour themselves out and continue to, to, to reach us. I heard one author, uh, might have been Robbie Gallaty, I don't remember. He said, we are here today, not because of the thousands Jesus fed, but because of the few that he led. Right? That's the heart of disciple making. So the second, the second truth we see from the Great Commission is, is there is a target. Jesus hasn't hidden, hidden it from us, and he's, he's taught us. And then the, the third truth, and this should probably be the one that's most exciting to us, is there's good news. There's promise of success. Jesus says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He addresses their doubt head on. I want you to... I had never realized this. I was reading this week, studying for this, and this is the last verse in the book of Matthew. Jesus says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you know how Matthew's gospel begins? This is fascinating to me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it's the promise to Mary. And it says, You'll give birth to a boy whose name will be what? Emmanuel, God with us. So Matthew recognizes that from the very beginning to the very end of his gospel, from the beginning of the mission to the end, all of it is accomplished because Jesus is with us. He's left the heavens. He's come to earth. He's entered human history. And at the end of his, his, his reign on earth, in his passing the baton of his commissioning the, the soldiers for, for battle, he reminds them, I'm with you. He meets the doubt head on, and he promises success. So three truths that, that I think we just have to understand to, to get disciple-making. I, I want us, first and foremost, just the word is, is so important. It's, it's our authority. I want us to sit under it for a time before we get into principles um, and practicalities. Three beautiful truths from the Great Commission that, that charge us, that, that push us, that call us, that remind us. Of, of this mission, this co-mission, mission with Jesus to, to reach the world for, for His glory. And so, 
as we get into the practical piece, like I said, I'm the director of discipleship at Rally Sports. All that means is, is I equip and, and train our, all of our current coaches and program directors. Um, some language we use, part-time coaches, we call coaches full-time guys that are raising support and, and overseeing programs we call sports missionaries because we believe that they have been called and sent from God to reach a culture of sport. If, if you're any wrestlers in here, Okay, I was a wrestler. If, if you weren't a wrestler and you stepped into wrestling culture, you would see that it's a culture altogether different, right? But God has gifted me with the language, with, with the ability, with the respect to, to be able to enter that culture, to speak its language, to reach those people, know its customs and norms. I know what, what you should do around a wrestler, what you shouldn't do around a wrestler, right? Just like any other culture in the world. And so we send out sports missionaries to the context of sport because they know the language, they have a love for the people, and they want to see the gospel proclaimed in that culture. So our full-time people we call sports missionaries, coaches are the part-time people. I train and equip those. I keep multiplication in front of them. That's my main goal, is to remind them of the Great Commission charge of making disciples through the context of sport. Um, we've had the opportunity, though, why I'm here. I'm not here on behalf of Reality Sports, though I am. I'm officially here on behalf of Faith Seminary. We're, we're partnering with Faith Seminary to lead a school of sports ministry that will fall under the school of the Dr. Robert Coleman School of Discipleship. So we kind of have, have two things going there, and we're going to talk about those later. Um, but we believe that sports provide an, an excellent context, because remember, it's all about context, as you go to preach the gospel and make disciples. But, but why sport? Why? why do we think sport is such a powerful context? Because we are able to meet people where they already are. That's the first one. And, and as we're going through these, I want to think about what context you're in. Some of you are sports people, but if you're not a sports person, think about these and see if they apply. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But here's why we think sports is a powerful context. I would suggest, and I want to hear from you, I believe the context you're in is a powerful context too. But sometimes we just have to think intentionally about it. Here's why we've thought intentionally about sports. There will be, well, not there yet. 21 million kids ages 6 to 17 that participate in recreational sport in America this year. That is a massive number. In the county that we're in in Washington, Pierce County, 150,000 kids will participate in sport. That's not counting families. That's not counting officials. That's not counting brothers and sisters and parents and things, right? Like that's just athletes. There's a massive grouping of people that we want to meet to proclaim the gospel, introduce them to know and follow Jesus, and then to invest in the believers through that context in discipleship. So 21 million in the U.S.? In the U.S., 21 million kids, 6 to 17. So we meet people where they already are. And the truth is, oftentimes, either unchurched or dechurched. Now, a lot of Christian kids play sports too, but of that number, a huge amount are, are unchurched in our community. That leads us to the second point. America is becoming, and, and we're from the Pacific Northwest, this is more true for us. Though if you're not from the Pacific Northwest, just wait, it's coming, right? We're becoming more and more postmodern, which means truth is relative. You believe what you wanna believe, I believe what I believe, we're good, right? There's no absolute truth. Post-Christian, so either no experience with the church or a negative experience with the church, right? We're still in the Bible Belt here, so you're not really experiencing this too much yet. Pacific Northwest, come out and join us. <laughs> but our country will never be post-sport. 
We might be postmodern. We might be post-Christian. We'll never be post-sport. We have an opportunity to meet 21 million people every single day of the year. We're never going to be post-sport. Second reason, sports provide a great opportunity to apply the gospel. There is something about competition that smokes out the sinfulness of our heart. Now, some of you maybe not didn't grow up playing sports. You're not too athletic or competitive. But let me ask, how did the last game of Monopoly go? <laughs> right? How many Monopoly games in the history of man have been like ended by the board being flipped and cash thrown everywhere? Except for my wife. My wife, she's the least competitive person. It drives me crazy. I'm really competitive. We play, we play board games like with other couples and she's like, oh, I don't really care if we win. Like, what are you, crazy? <laughs> Come on. And it smokes out the sin in my heart. And I have to repent. Babe, I shouldn't have talked to you that way. I, I apologize. This is a board game. This is silly. <laughs> and I have to apply the gospel to my heart. And she reminds me and I get to repent. And sports provide a great opportunity to apply the gospel or board games. Right? Competition smokes out the deepest desires of our heart. And oftentimes those are sinful. And then lastly, sports create a phenomenal environment for discipleship. How many of you played any type of sport growing up? Okay. Now, if I said, how many of you would say one of the most impactful people in your life was a coach at some point? How many of you would raise your hand? A lot of us, right? And oftentimes that was outside of a Christian context. Think about when we get to apply the gospel and, and do it intentionally for discipleship. That relationship between a coach and an athlete is a powerful relationship. And so we think teams and training, which is what we focus on, cultivate space for the coach-athlete relationship to thrive. So when we look at this, we think, man, sports is a phenomenal context to invite people to know and trust in Jesus and to walk with them and help them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Right? And so that's why we believe in sports ministry. A little bit about reality sports, just so you know who we are. Our vision is to turn the world upside down through sport. Acts 17, 6 and 7, Paul and Silas are going through Thessalonica to Roman Empire. And what they're doing is they're proclaiming that King Caesar is not the ultimate king. Jesus is. And a mob forms... They go to Jason's house thinking he's there. They've already escaped. They pull Jason out. And what they say is, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also saying there's another King Jesus. The truth is, when you proclaim the truth of the gospel, every man or woman will respond in either repentance or rebellion. And so when we proclaim the gospel, the world gets turned upside down. Now, I want to make a caveat here. We're not saying that our desire or our goal is to go into the sports world and turn the sports world upside down. We don't think it's possible, number one. We don't think it's what Jesus wants us to do, number two. We'd be aiming at the wrong target. But what we do believe, this comes right from Dr. Coleman's book in Master Plan Evangelism. One cannot transform the world except as individuals in the world are transformed. So we believe we have the opportunity through sport to meet athletes, to preach the gospel, watch them get saved by the power of the Holy Spirit, be transformed, walk with them to teach, to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Now they're living in a way that's turning their little world upside down, oftentimes not in the sports world anymore, going off to where they, where they are, what they're doing, other contexts. And we believe the world can be turned upside down because the gospel is being proclaimed. So that's our vision. 
Our mission is to share the life-changing message of the gospel with athletes and families, to make disciple-makers of Jesus within the context of sport. We get to come alongside the church, provide a context for people that are in the church, that have been gifted in the sports arena, that are coaches already, that, that love sport, to leave the walls of the church, to enter into spheres of community and live on mission and be mission-minded. And so we partner with the church in ways for them to reach the community by sharing the life-changing message of the gospel. It's inviting and it's investing evangelism and discipleship. The church gets to use the context of sport as a way to go, right? As you go make disciples, sport is a way we partner with the churches. Our strategy, we call it the four foundations. These are going to be the practical steps we're going to spend the rest of our time on. This is a way. This isn't the way. This way works for us. We think these four foundations or these four principles of disciple making are transferable to every context. So what we're gonna spend the rest of our time doing is going over each of these, explain how we do it in our context, and then there's gonna be some dialogue, you guys explaining what your context is and how it might transfer. Hopefully, either you're already doing it and say, here's how I do it in my context, and we can be encouraged by one another, maybe get some ideas from one another, or you might say, I've never thought of that. Here's how I think it could work in my context, and we get really excited and pat you on the back and send you out and charge you up before you go. So our four foundations. First one is discipleship. Now, that's not a typo. We, we coined a word because we believe that language creates culture, and language is really, really important. And so whenever we said discipleship, we wanted everyone we're around, especially ourselves, to remember a disciple isn't someone that simply follows Jesus for their own good but that a disciple is a discipler. That the, the practice of discipleship doesn't end until the disciple is making a disciple. And so we coined a word so we'd never forget it, that we say it all the time. We're doing disciplership. We wanna make disciplers. And so this is a word that, that we've coined. Uh, this is the thrust of as you go, right? It's the, the Great Commission lifestyle. We at Reality Sports have been gifted with abilities and, and passions in the sports world. And in faithfulness to the Great Commission, we seek to make disciples as we're going according to that context and that passion and that ability. For your context, it might be different. I love 2 Timothy 2.2. Kess alluded to it in our last track session. But, but what I love about it is this shows that in 30 or 40 years, the Great Commission was working, right? Paul's telling now Timothy to, to do discipleship with guys who will do discipleship. And so just a few years after the Great Commission, we already see it taking place. We see four generations of disciple-making here, right? Paul, Timothy, those who Timothy will teach, and they're going to be able to teach, so four generations. I love that. It's, it's like the master plan was really this master plan, and it works. I think we need to define disciple-making. I um, was talking with Robbie Galley a little bit ago, and he said the church uses the word discipleship for everything. And when discipleship means everything, it means nothing. I think that's really helpful, right? Whenever I'm in a new context teaching or I'm talking with other pastors and they want to talk about discipleship, I, I have to hit time out and say, what do we mean by that, right? Unfortunately, we're going to do that with the gospel now, too. We're gospel-centered. Well, look, what does that mean? We're going to get into that in a minute, too. But so here's how we define disciple-making. Intentionally introducing and equipping others through shared contexts with the Word of God, through accountable relationships, empowered by the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of multiplication in the kingdom of God. Now, we've sat down, we've wrestled with this definition for a long time, 
and we, we just believe in the power of language creating culture and so this is a, or a definition we, we work on and, and think through and, and use and, and explain and say a lot. Every word was chosen intentionally on purpose and, and really we believe it comes from the Great Commission. So I've added in the Great Commission pieces to this. We want to be intentional because Jesus authorized us. Right? It's the only time Jesus authorized his disciples to do something. I think we should be intentional about it. Right? Oftentimes I hear the, the second uh, Timothy passage saying, this was Paul's final letter to Timothy. You would think someone on their deathbed writing out a letter would be some of the most important things he'd ever say to a disciple, right? And I agree. But I would say, then let's go back to the Great Commission. This is the Lord of the earth in his final face-to-face -face with his disciples. I think that would be really important. And what's he leave them with? The Great Commission. And so we want to be intentionally introducing, which is the baptizing. I don't believe you can disciple non-believers. I think if you're interacting with a non-believer, you're doing evangelism. And so that's the introducing part. And equipping. Here comes discipleship, teaching them to obey. Others through shared contexts as you go. Natural relationship works best, right? If we have a friendship, if we have relationship, if we're co-workers, if I'm your dad and you're my son, natural context with the Word of God. The, the Word of God is centerpiece. We don't, we don't believe in, we don't not disbelieve. We don't focus on program or curriculum for discipleship. We believe the Word of God is the curriculum. Jesus was the rabbinic school. Jesus was the method. And we believe the Word of God is that for us. And so we center our discipleship on the Word of God through accountable relationships. I've defined accountable relationships, or I've heard it defined, as uh, being questionable to and questionable for. Right. So I can ask questions of you and you can ask questions of me. That's accountability. That's coming through relationship. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us until the end of the age for the purpose of multiplication. It's the commission. This was how Jesus was going to reach the world, and he invited us into it. That is our definition of disciple-making. We've, we've tried to work on this in terms of just discipleship. We like sticky things. Definitions are sticky. Images are sticky. It's easy to remember. Um, our coaches are, are busy. They're, they're active. They're doing things. The, the stickier things we can give them, the better. Here's one of them. We call it the discipleship triangle. It's information, imitation, and innovation. So you can boil discipleship down to those three things. Information is passing on knowledge. right? The Word of God is information. It's, it's news. It's proclamation. It's coming to us. But information by itself is not helpful. right? Information without application is useless information. We don't want that. I've heard someone say that, that the church's knowledge has surpassed their obedience. Isn't that true? I've said it this way. There's an obesity problem in the church, and it's not just physical. Right? There is a spiritual obesity problem in the church. We're, we're doing Bible studies galore. We're, we're intaking. We're consuming. And we're doing nothing with it. And so the imitation piece comes in. Paul tells his disciples, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We want to give our disciples something to imitate. They, as we follow God, we want them to watch us follow God. As we read the scriptures, we want them to watch us read the scriptures. We say it's I do, we do, you do. Right? We're, we're imitation. We're, we're showing them. It's the application of, of the information. And then lastly, the innovation is 
discipleship is not creating robots, right? Kess is my spiritual grandfather. There's little that are, that are robotic of me. We're very different people. You spend some time, right? You can joke, walk into our hotel room, you'll know whose half is whose. We're very different. And yet, if you prick me, we have the same DNA. But, but the innovation piece is, I want to walk with my disciples, help them experience or come to find out what their experiences are, how God's gifted them, what their passions are, what are the contexts that they have to make disciples in, right? I was a student ministry pastor for a number of years, and I would always tell our students, here's how the innovation piece plays out. I can, I can walk with you. I can, I can teach you how to preach the gospel, but I can never reach the kid you sit next to in biology class because I don't have access, Right? And so I want them to, to be innovative. Here's how God has gifted me. Here's the context God has put me in. He's put me in Biology 101, sitting next to Jimmy right here. I have the opportunity to preach the gospel, make disciples of Jimmy. Helping our disciples think that way. Information, imitation, innovation. That's how we define the discipleship piece of disciple making. Okay. So, in our context... We coach athletes. Let me ask, what are the contexts God has placed you, which I think he has, I said that earlier, Acts 17, 26 and, 17, 26 and 27, says that God has appointed you in a place and a time so that he might be revealed to you, right? Or that you might reveal God to other people. And so I believe you've play, been placed in a context I just want to hear some, and we don't all have to share. I'd, I'd love if we did. What are the contexts God has placed you? I'm a teacher. I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm an architect. I'm a pastor. I oversee this. What are the contexts that you believe God has you where you could make disciples, disciple-making, evangelism, and discipleship? What are those? Let's think intentionally about that. This is the part where it's awkward if you don't talk. I appreciate Little League Baseball. Okay. So I'm around kids all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> Very good. Do you have younger umps with you? There we go. Okay. Good. That's a good context. And we're going to build on these, so share them now. I've got actually a unique three. I'm a youth pastor, um, but I'm a uh, varsity soccer, girls soccer coach and assistant basketball coach in, a, uh, in our area. But I'm also the chaplain at our local public high school Yeah. And uh, with football, baseball, and basketball. Yeah. What we're going to find, so this is a, a worksheet we use in our School of Discipleship. Many of us have multiple contexts, right? And when we start thinking intentionally about it, the average person can, up, can come up with over 100 names in these circles. 100 names for us to be intentionally pursuing in either evangelism or discipleship. So that's what I'm kind of trying to get us to think through. And let's just say, what do you think is your most powerful context right now? Or your most uh, harvest-worthy What's the lowest hanging fruit context that you're in? I'm a student athlete in a school that really doesn't care about Jesus. So. <sighs> context galore. Because we're going to get into a couple other principles. You start living differently through the way you compete. Lights out. Lights out. We're going to get to that. Good. Other contexts. Yeah. That's a lot of context. <laughs> That's a lot of touch points. One thing I'll say about the business sector you look at the trades, particularly, but business in general, they destroy the church in disciple-making. They call it apprenticeship, right? But they destroy us. Like, they get it. 
I'm gonna have someone who knows the job walk with this guy. I've got a good buddy, it's an electrician. He's on year four of his apprenticeship. He's like, I haven't left this guy's side for four years. He's yeah. teaching me everything. I'm not allowed to go out on my own until. I'm like, dang, he's being discipled better to be an electrician than we are to follow Jesus, right? So if you're a business person, man, look for ways. That is a phenomenal context. Yeah, it's all about relationship. If we didn't hear your context, we're going to have more opportunity to talk about those. John, do I have till 5.15 or 5? Good. <laughs> that just worried me. Second foundation. Four foundations. First one is discipleship. That's just meaning we're going to look for our context to be really intentional. Right? That's our first foundation. We believe we've been called to make disciples. That's what the Great Commission piece was. So we're going to be really intentional in our context. Second one is intentional messages. We share intentional messages from God's Word, articulating the gospel message to athletes and families at every single workout and in our discipleship groups. So the Word is the centerpiece of our sports ministry. Every single workout, we're either beginning or ending with opening the Word. Shoot for about 15-minute messages with our age group focusing on the gospel. So if disciple making includes evangelism on one hand, discipleship on the other, then the gospel has to be the undergirding of it all. We're intentional in articulating the gospel. But like discipleship, we probably need to define what we mean by gospel because unfortunately, if it means everything, it means nothing. Uh, a, a resource that, that I would encourage you to, to look at has been a phenomenal resource just for us to, to think through a framework as, a, as an organization is What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. It's a little nine marks book. He has a, a four-point framework in there that is Christ, man, God, man, Christ response. God, man, Christ response. That has just been a really helpful framework for us to think through the gospel, but then also articulate it. Those are the four points in our messages all the time, right? It's the truth that, and it gives us a framework to be able to share the gospel. It's the truth that God created everything, that he is the one uncreated being. He made everything good and very good to, to know him and to reflect his perfect image. But that man, in a, in a, in a power-hungry move, in, a, in a, a moment of rebellion, believed a lie that God was not good, and they began searching for their own glory. They walked away from God. They pursued a second kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God. And from there on, we've just seen this downward spiral of sin, and it doesn't take much to look around our world and see the effects of that. But God so loved His creation that He sent His one and only Son that he, he kept his covenantal promises. He sent Jesus Christ to enter into human history, live the life we didn't live, die the death we should, and proved he was God by res resurrecting from the dead, inviting people to trust in him, put their faith in him, and have relationship and righteousness. And that requires a response. That there's a, there's a gift under the Christmas tree with our name on it, but until we receive that and, and it becomes ours, it's, it's not. And so there's response. And so that's been a helpful framework for us. I would, I would commend that resource to you. What's his name again? Greg Gilbert. Greg Gilbert. Yep, yep. It's a nine marks book. Real short little thing. You can read it with your disciples, with younger people. Uh, it's a great work. What is the gospel? Yep. But so understanding and being fluent in what we, what we would call the explicit, true biblical gospel, because there's a lot of gospels, is so important for disciple making because the gospel that you're fluent in, meaning the gospel that you uphold, the gospel that you celebrate and that you speak most of, 
determines the type of disciple you'll make. And I want to just give you a couple examples of that. I've seen this. See, if you uphold and cherish what I'm going to call here the self-help gospel, right? This idea that, that I just need to clean myself up and, and God is there to help me. And he's my insurance agent and, and he's the addendum to my agenda of me helping myself, right? Um, what happens is we create disciples that don't necessarily trust Jesus, but they trust themselves. And, and they look to him as just this, this promise to help them achieve their desires. Uh, our disciples under the self-help gospel will adhere more to what I call sola bootstrapa than soli deo gloria, right? Our, our disciples' success, peace, joy, and satisfaction will not come from trusting and resting in Christ. I mean, it'll be a yo-yo effect of how good they're being. Self-help gospel disciples will only multiply when things are good. You will never see someone who trusts in the self-help gospel multiply in, in pain and suffering. Because if they're going through pain and suffering, something must not be right. Right? Another example, if you uphold and cherish the implied gospel. Now, where we're from in the Pacific Northwest, you can't imply the gospel. Because you're talking to people who have been de-churched and unchurched for a long time. There's no implying anything anymore. Right? I had a 16-year-old kid come to a wrestling workout. I shared the gospel at the end. He came up to me and said, are you telling me Jesus was a real person? And I said, yes. And he said, I've only ever heard Jesus as a derogatory swear word, and I didn't know it was a person. Like, literally, had no, no frame of reference. That's the Pacific Northwest. But we're in the Bible Belt. There is the implied gospel. I've come to, to the South a number of times over the last couple of years, and, and even at, at conferences, sports ministry conference, discipleship conference, I'll, I'll hear the gospel implied. Right? And, and it works here because people know the Christian terms. They know the Bible stories. Right? But what happens if that's the gospel that we uphold is we create disciples that may or may not really be saved. We might disciple a guy for 10 or 15 years. And somehow in a, in a tragedy, he experiences the true gospel. And he comes to salvation. And you're like, I've been walking with this guy for 15 years. The chance that they recognize and acknowledge sin, trust in Jesus, life, death, and resurrection for them, and that they've been filled with the Spirit to be on mission with Jesus is minimal if you're upholding the implied gospel. They'll speak the language, they'll have a surface-level understanding of Christian things, yet run the risk of missing out on real, intimate, saving relationships with Jesus. And the type of disciples that implied gospel disciples will multiply are either similarly shallow disciples. If they're saved, they might be an inch deep and a mile wide, or they'll eventually stop making disciples because the implied gospel eventually loses its luster. It has no power, right? And so they, they just stop. If you uphold and are fluent in the one true explicit biblical gospel, the one that promises we have nothing to offer, but that when we live in a, in a state of repentance, trusting in the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ, recognizing that the only power we have is the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, our disciples will understand and embody both the essence and the effects of the true gospel. I'm taking this from Colossians 1, 3 through 8. The essence of the gospel is that it's absolute truth. It's active. It's declared and it's eternal. Talk about things that are against our culture, our religion, and what I see in young people, this idea of YOLO, you only live once. Right? 
The essence of the gospel wars against those things. The other two gospels have nothing to offer culture, religion, or what our youth are experiencing. But then the effects of the gospel take root in our disciples as well. The gospel grows and multiplies. That's the effect it has. If you're not seeing the gospel growing and multiplying, it's not the gospel because that's the effect it has. It does it. It's promised. It accomplishes exactly what God wants it to accomplish. It produces faith, hope, and love. Again, from first, or Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Essentially, the effects of the gospel are Jesus saying, Behold, I am with you until the end of the age. The one true explicit biblical gospel disciple multiplies on purpose, with fervor, because they understand who they are. They understand what Jesus has done for them, how good of news that is, and they want to share it with everyone they can. So the, the gospel that we uphold, the gospel that we declare, dictates the type of disciples we make. And so I'm going to ask, in your context, take, take a moment to think about this. How are you being intentional with the word and the gospel in your context? Or how could you? How could something maybe you've heard today or at this conference stir you to say, man, I want to do this and here's how I could do it? Anyone? Let me say one thing. Easy for a sports ministry where everyone knows that and comes to us. Unbelievers and believers. One of the things we are say is, we're going to get to in a second, a foundation we have is coaching excellence, meaning we want to do things really excellently. So if, if we're doing wrestling ministry, we're looking for guys that really know wrestling so that we can earn the right to be heard. So unbelievers will come to us because they're like, these guys know wrestling, right? So we have un like half our team is unbelievers, and the other half were, and they're believers now. But so, it's easy for us to intentionally proclaim the gospel because they're coming to us knowing we're sports ministry. Another resource I would commend to you in, in, in terms of this is a book called Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. He's a Pacific Northwest guy. He gets this post-Christianity, this post-modernity, and it's this book basically saying, if I went to Germany, I would have to have the, or the dictionary out to ask any question, and it would, be, it would really slow things down. It would be hard to build relationship. And oftentimes, that's how we are with the gospel, right? Someone asks us something or shares a life story or an experience they're going through, and I kind of have some Christian ease, you know, platitudes for them. But if I really want to do something, I have to go to the Bible, which is good, right? But it slows it down where if we can be fluent with the gospel, that the gospel is just something we know and understand and we get to speak to. And so Kess says he's struggling with something at work and, and he's thinking about quitting because he feels like he's being abused. I have the opportunity to first and foremost say, you know, Kess, explain to me, it sounds like you're trying to get your value and image from, from work. It, it doesn't sound like they're really, um, you know, coming after you. It sounds like you're feeling offended. You're being defensive because they're, they're encroaching on your glory, on your pride. Is that, is that accurate? And we get to just talk the gospel with people. And so if we don't have this intentional format to, to be able to open the word and, and do messages with people, that would be a resource I would commend of thinking through having the gospel be intentional in all of your conversations. It's called gospel fluency. But anyone, anyone doing this in your context... What, what's a way, maybe you're not in sports ministry, but you're doing it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's for every state or every public school system where we're at. I've, I've coached in the public sector as well. Um, you know, if a student comes to me, I have every right to share whatever I believe, 
right? I can't hold a formal Bible study necessarily, but, but that really gives credence to this gospel fluency and to, you know, to be ready in season and out season to give a defense of what you believe. Like a kid comes to me with issues at home, I am going to the gospel every single time, right? It's just an opportunity to meet them where they are, trusting that God has put them in my context with this problem to, to be able to shine light into their, their situation. That's really good. So it's being intentional, right? That's, the, that's the, the brunt of this is saying, God, who are you bringing that I can, I can just be fluent in the gospel with intentionally to speak your word, proclaim your majesty, and trust you with the results, right? The beauty of, of evangelism is obedience is doing it. Obedience isn't results, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold out the word of God. He's in charge of the results. Next, we got to get going. Uh, competing upside down. This is our philosophy of competition. It's our, our theology of competition, really. It's a gospel-centered philosophy of competition according to the Word of God, by the power of God, for the glory of God. So we're saying the Word informs how we should compete. The Spirit empowers us to do so. And it's all done for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's the vertical outworking of this. Then the horizontal outworking of this for us comes from Genesis 12, 2 and 3. The promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in, in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We believe as we've been grafted into Abraham's family of faith, that we have been blessed to be a blessing. And so this, this translates to every context. We, we do it in sport in four ways. We want to bless our teammates closest to us, right? Other contexts, that's our family, it's our coworkers, those who are in our, 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 our immediate sphere of influence. Bless our teammates. Bless our opponents. That's crazy. Bless our opponents. We're looking for radical ways to bless those who are coming against us, right? Bless the officials. Now we're getting even more crazy, right? All the blessings we get. That's right. <laughs> And then blessing the forgotten. Who are the lowest, least, and left out around us? In sports, it happens all the time. It's the JV athlete. It's the hurt athlete. It's the freshman, right? You got a question? If, if you have time, yeah. what does the bless your opponents, bless the officials look like? Yeah. Let me come back to that. And I might even get you offline on that, okay? Um, so we just believe that the gospel is too big. It's too pervasive. It's too cosmic. It's too transforming to say, it's changed me, but you're going to come watch me compete and I look like an idiot. And I look like the rest of the world, right? The worst place for me as a guy who understands this to go is the YMCA in our community on Friday morning when all the pastors play basketball. <laughs> I pull my hair out. Honestly. I had a pastor who was playing in that, and I know this because a buddy goes to his congregation. He stood up on a Sunday morning and said, I have to confess to you all. I screamed an F-bomb at the top of my lungs Friday morning playing basketball. Pick up basketball at the YMCA. Right? I just believe the power of the gospel is too transformative for us to compete no different than the world. Are we going to do it perfectly? No. Are we going to sin and stumble? Yes. But now here's an opportunity for us to walk in our athletes and applying the gospel in that, living a life of repentance. But if you're full of the Holy Spirit, you should start looking differently. You don't just get to be an idiot forever, <laughs> right? 
This is, this is exemplified. Uh, no wrestlers in the room, so you probably don't even know this is happening. This last week was the World Championships of Wrestling. It was in Budapest, Hungary. We have a wrestler in America. His name is Kyle Snyder. He was going for his fifth world title. He's 23 years old. He just graduated from college. He's amazing. He was wrestling a returning Olympic world champion who he beat last year at the world championships. So they have a rematch in the finals again this year. He got pinned. Like caught too, like probably shouldn't have. Right off the mat, someone comes up to him and says, Kyle, athletes are often defined by their wins and losses. How is this gonna define you? And he said, I'm not defined by my wins and losses. I'm defined by my relationship in Jesus Christ. He said, honestly, when I go home to Ohio, my community won't know if I won or lost. I'm not going home any different than if I'd have just won that medal, right? This is a man who's a competing according to the word of God, by the power of God, for the glory of God. He just lost the biggest match of his life. Here's what's cool too. He got pinned in the NCAA's finals his freshman year. He said, the only two times I've been pinned in my career are the NCAA finals and the world finals. And he said, here's how I know I'm maturing as a believer in Christ. He's telling this to a reporter. It's on YouTube. He says, in the NCAA finals, I was tore up. My life was a mess. I was depressed after. He said, now, I don't care. I'm wrestling. I'm living for Jesus. Like, you could take wrestling away and I'm fine. Right? That's what we want our athletes to start doing. So the question for us, and we're not going to discuss this one. How is, um, how is the gospel causing you to live differently in your context that people are noticing? Right? Who in your context are you able to, to be a blessing to in a radical way that might cause them to say, like, we've had officials come up to our, our team and athlete and say, why are you doing this? We've never had this happen before. Opposing coaches come, like, kids are the, the hardest playing, hardest working, like, they're out to win, but man, they're kind. <laughs> what in the world, right? What's that look like in your context? And then the last one is coaching excellence. As, as a reflection of our image maker and to earn the right to be heard, reality sports coaches strive to be excellent at their craft. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. And that's what we view the sport to be, right? I've been gifted with abilities to wrestle and coach wrestling, not wrestled as much anymore, coach wrestling. And, and I, want to, I want to work at that with all of my heart, not, not to impress people, but for the Lord. And what it does is we get to be good stewards of what God's given us. We honor him as our image maker, but it also allows us to earn the right to be heard and it gains, gains us an audience. Right? People come to our sports because they know this is the best wrestling club in our community. They come to our soccer teams because they know this guy was a Division I player and he, he knows the game. He coaches these kids up. Right? We have, our, we have a, a martial arts club and, and a, actually a submission grappling team. And our, our director is phenomenal. He's a black belt. Um, he's had a group of five military guys, all unbelievers. We, we live right by uh, Fort Lewis in Washington. They're coming up, they're, they're trained combatives guys in the military, but they know they can get further additional training from Rusty that they can't get anywhere else. And so they're coming to his gym, submitting to his leadership. He's now walking, it's not discipleship yet because they're unbelievers, but he's walking with three of them, 6 a.m. in the morning before they go on to base, walking them through the gospel. Only because he's an excellent martial arts coach. Like that's it, 
right? And so I think, I think what, we, what we see from this is, is with our competing upside down, you have a Kyle Snyder who he, he has the, the Christian excellence, right? They notice that. Like, this guy's talking about losing the world championship different than I am. And so that stands out. But then with Rusty, our coach, you have this worldly excellence, right? Pagans and, and unbelievers are coming and saying, this guy's attractive, if it's, if it's just martial arts at first, it's attractive. And so my question for this context for you would, would be, where is your excellence attractive to those around you? I think this summarizes it. Um, this is how I'll end the, the formal part of the teaching. Martin Luther has a quote that says, how can the Christian cobbler honor and glorify God most? Christian or cobbler is a shoemaker back in the day, right? Not by sewing little crosses on every shoe he makes but by making those shoes as best as he possibly can for the glory of God. That's the coaching excellence piece for us. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.